It's January 10th, 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. And the first one we got here, Navy Air Force flight stats have been dive bombing for two decades from the CBO. Well, actually, this is a breaking defense article uh, quoting the CBO, uh, but the basic tagline here is that fleet-wide aircraft availability rates have been declining for the past two decades from roughly 60% to 40%, and so have... Uh, annual flight hours per aircraft also been on a downward trajectory. So I would actually not recommend reading the Breaking Defense article and just going straight to the CBO report because the CBO reports, actually, I kind of like the way they do them. They're pretty short and they usually are kind of just like infographic or, uh, you know, chart data dense. So I went straight there. Uh, Matt, did you actually pull up the report? Yeah, I did. I looked through it a little bit. Um, I agree with you. I like CBO reports. They're generally, I think, done for congressional audiences, and so they, yeah, they don't they don't mess around too, too much with a lot of pros. Um, yeah, so a couple of things I pulled out of there was, you know, as of like April 2020, um, the the Air Force flew. Um, they basically found the Air Force flew 69% as many hours as it did pre-pandemic, while the Navy flew 80%. So it was like Air Force was 69% you know, flying hours from previous years and the Navy was 81%. And then generally the availability rates didn't seem to be that off. Um, it was actually, you know, like it went from 49 to 54 for the Air Force. Um, for the Navy, it was like at 41, went to 44 and then fell down to 43. So the availability was pretty steady, but yeah, pretty big difference in the number of flight hours. And then the, the bigger piece I think is the, um, is the difference between the aircraft, uh, the the F-15 or the F-18EF has flown more hours, quite a bit more hours actually than than the older F-15CDs. So they kind of did a comparison against the 18EFs and the F-15CDs. Um, and the CDs are quite a bit older, but the E-18EFs have seem to have more life on them uh, or have, have had a more uh, life extent, extended. So, so basically you have... Um, you know, 18 EFs are, are pretty much, you know, being worn out. Um, F-15 CDs are older, but and their availability is not great, but they're um, they're not flying as often. So, yeah, kind of interesting how they compared some of the different aircrafts. I think the key here is that, you know, the CBO gave these numbers. They didn't provide a ton of context. And I think the context piece is that, you know, when Secretary Mattis, uh, General Mattis uh, became Secretary of Defense, he was really big on readiness. And I think that was from his days as like a COCOM commander. And he basically was very focused on like, hey, everything needs to be at 80% readiness. And that was his big initiative. And so if you look at the budgets from, from when he came into office, it was, you know, they're very readiness focused. Um, I think modernization actually took a hit because of it. And so so everyone had that 80% mark in their head and, the, and DOD was kind of judged the services on that. But uh, recently, General Brown, he came in, he basically abandoned that. And he said, you know, he's allowing the commands to determine their, you know, mission cable rates, um, you know, that he promised that it'll balance like readiness with investment. And I think that's that's been his thing is he's actually kind of pulling readiness dollars to actually go after more longer term capability. Uh, I think he's been pretty clear about that in his accelerate, you know, accelerate per, uh, paper. And so the the bottom line is that you know we can't get too wrapped around the readiness the the, the availability numbers or the readiness numbers because you know it doesn't tell the whole story. Like even the army, 
they actually have like a mission essential task list and they, they basically measure readiness against like, can you actually complete these tasks? And that may not actually mean that like a percentage of their tanks are capable of being driven because they can actually complete the task with a smaller number of tanks. So, yeah. So I think, it, I think there's a lot more like someone made the, the argument that readiness is more art than a science. So I do think you have to be careful about this paper about getting wrapped around the axle. Um, I think the key is that, yeah, we're probably not where everyone would like in terms of readiness, but we're making some sacrifices to kind of, you know, get after new capabilities. So. Yeah, I think the the Jim Mattis part was the kind of important context there. I remember, you know, they were talking about Navy F-18s were at like 50% readiness or something. And then a couple of years later in 2019, 2020, uh, they were talking about, oh, well, we, we met our 80% goal and everyone kind of, it looked like they were almost kind of achieving uh, victory there. And I remember I was watching uh, an, an interview with Arnold Bunch, who was the AFMC commander. He might still be the commander there, but he said something yeah. which sounded pretty obvious to me. He, he said, I'm going to quote it. Uh, the really big lesson we learned is that if we put money into the system and we tell industry what we want to go do then we can improve the mission capable rate. And I'm like, well, yeah, I hope if you throw a lot more money into it, you can uh, improve the capable rate. But um, It would be bad if it was the opposite. You threw a bunch of money and you got the <laughs> less capable. But it almost feels like that, uh, right? Because it's like, well, okay, you threw a bunch more money. And when you look at these figures, the mission capable or the aircraft availability rate actually was just on a steady decline all the way through until 2020. And you got a slight, very slight uptick, but that might also be due to the whole time you've been seeing flying hours decrease. Even through the pandemic, there was even steeper decrease, right? And you would think that, well, if you're flying less per aircraft, then with the same amount of money, you should be able to have a higher availability rate. But they weren't even able to boost it in terms of availability rate uh, with that higher funding at that line. But then you know, I would suggest looking at the report because they detail a little bit the difference between aircraft availability, which is this broader metric of everything in the inventory versus mission capable, which is the thing that DOD likes to talk about, or they'll just talk readiness figures and just kind of, you know, hand wave what they're actually talking about, which are, I guess, are higher figures, right? So it looks like they're able to boost mission capability rate um, in the 2019 timeframe when these figures that the CBO reporting, and we haven't really been able to see aircraft availability elsewhere that the department doesn't really report it. Um, th that was still going down. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the CBO is making the point that the services measure it differently, particularly the air force, because when a, when a aircraft goes into depot, they basically sort of like count it out of the equation. And so one way to kind of boost your mission cable rates is to send aircraft to the depot and, not that they wouldn't have anyway. I mean, these are older aircraft. They have to go to the depot, of, you know, periodically to get. But the F thirty five is like that too, right? It has to go to the depot more often than they were planning. Depending on what mod, what what Albert version, some of them have yes, a ton of mods to do because they they got stuck kind of in some of the concurrency uh, backlog. But um, but I mean, in, in general, some of these older aircraft, they go in, they get slept. You know, they'll like you know laser the wings and you know replace spars or something like you know they'll do it once over and make sure that everything's like you know copacetic but um, but yeah I, mean, I i won't say that there's gaming but basically on the air force equation you could send something to the depot and that could potentially 
you know, rotating planes out of there would potentially increase your emission cable rate, where CBO takes that out of the equation and basically says, like, total fleet. We just measure against total fleet. So when you took those numbers, like C-130, I think, dropped, like, 8%. Some of the other aircraft dropped, like, 6% in their readiness rates. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it was uh, it was bigger than that. It w- That was actually, the I think, the stricter measure versus the CBO's measure. Um, they had, like, a stricter measure and an and a official measure, but then there's actually the mission capability rate, which is a very different rate altogether. And I guess the point that I was trying to make is, why did the services say, you know, like, oh, mission accomplished? I guess they were saying, from from the mission-capable rate, we were able to boost that and meet our goals. But when you look at these figures using aircraft availability, which is, you know, more general and harder to kind of manipulate, um, that had still been kind of going down. So no mission accomplished. Yeah, I, 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 I kind of took that. Yeah, I get your point. I think I kind of took it as, you know, it was mainly that mission capable, like how you determine mission capable. And for the Air Force, it was like, you know, it was actually like an available available to fly, whereas the, the CBO just didn't view that as like a discriminator or denominator. They just viewed that as like total fleet agnostic. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways. We've talked about flying hours before. Mike Benitez did a great, uh, <laughs> great rundown on flying hours. And, you know, some of these metrics are probably not the best way to measure, um, you know, what, what Congress cares about because they can be gained in some cases. They can be, you know, interpreted in different ways. So, yeah, you got to always look at the details and kind of understand the context. Yeah, but we're data-driven, you know? Like, we've got to make decisions based on data. What do you mean that there's context to data, different figures that might go different directions? What does that mean to me as a decision-maker? Well, this goes, Eric, this is what we've always talked about, is, like, you know, it's one of these things where, um, you know, Advana, which is this whole big data-driven thing that the DOD is rolling out, and it's supposed to tell Congress, you know, at least the way it's been kind of promised to GAO and Congress, it's supposed to tell them, everything you know they ever wanted to know about DOD programs and you know uh all the different little metrics and stuff that they they might be interested but the fact of the matter is that you know even when we were sending you know you know defense acquisition system reports to congress uh, like the performance of the defense acquisition system and we were uh you know sending all these SARS and all you know all these talking papers Unless you actually have a conversation, you know, there are different ways you can interpret this because these are all complex, complex systems, complex, um, complex things that go on. I mean, this happened with the E10 where there was massive arguments about like what it meant for an A10 to be retired, right? Because we weren't allowed to retire them. Could and like, there's like different statuses of kind of being a mothballed aircraft. Like you can be kind of out of commission, but you're not like you can be brought back. And, you know, so there's a lot of nuance to all of this stuff. And I think this just goes to our point about, I think, oversight. Oversight needs to be done with people who are informed, who know, with decision makers, have a conversation and not necessarily rely on some, you know, some report. It's it's, it's kind of uh, more complicated than that. (laughs) Yeah, most definitely. Um, You know, one of the points that, I'm always reminded of from like Edward Lutvak, who basically said, you know, if you want a force that's ready to go to war, you want a very unready force, right? You want to have a lot of excess um, material and equipment 
that you can ramp up and get deployed really fast as opposed to everything is in tip-top shape, everything is 100%, but you just don't have enough of it to matter in, in a war that matters, right? <laughs> so I, I often wonder, you know, to what degree should we be aiming for like this really high readiness rate as opposed to a low readiness rate with with a lot of slack in it? But then the, the problem is you don't want to have too much old equipment that just gets wiped off the face of the earth as well, so... I don't know. <laughs> well, this discussion kind of is like about, you know, we've talked a lot about autonomy and, you know, unmanned systems and, you know, less complex systems. I really do think that if DOD moves to a paradigm that takes more advantage of commercial technology, uh, lower complexity, more optionality in, you know, different systems, suites of systems, right, that provide a collective capability, but aren't like a single point of failure. You know, I think if we move to that paradigm and we get away from these, everything is an exotic DOD unique system that takes years and years to develop and very hard to maintain. Uh, if we get away from that paradigm, I think this question will almost go away because if you have, if you have a bunch of attributable systems and you only have a few really exotic systems, uh, this equation is going to be a lot easier to, <laughs> to navigate. It's not going to be, we're going to have tons of, you know, we'll be able to have tons of these lower cost systems where the quantity piece won't be quite as emotional. And the the readiness piece will just be like, yeah, how many drones can you throw at it? You know, it's like, well, we got 20,000. Uh, you know, we think that's going to be enough, you know, to complete the operation, even if, uh, you know, 30% of them get shot down, you know. So I hope we move into that kind of uh, paradigm. Yeah, most definitely. I'm actually 100% with you that there's no reason that 70% of sustainment costs need to be or 70% of total life cycle costs need to be sustainment. And in fact, that's probably an artifact of poor decisions in the past, right? And so, um, yeah, I think I think you're right. If we get to more commercial technologies, more information centric technologies, you'll be able to kind of, you know, flip that script a little bit and uh, reduce sustainment costs. But of course, there's always what I like to call the the Harrison curve, Todd Harrison likes to point out that sustainment cost per unit is a function of how many you have in the inventory. And when you get to there, you say, well, I need a whole lot of uh, the same aircraft. And so it becomes this big planning, one program to rule them all kind of mindset that you get yourself back into. So you almost have to kind of prove your way out of that. Yeah. And that's the paradigm shift, I think, is, you know, the General Hyten before he left, he, he issued the joint warfighting concept for expanded maneuver. And, you know, if you look at that, it's very much around the idea that, um, you know, you, you, you aggregate and when you need to, to complete a mission and you disaggregate uh, when the threat becomes too great. And so that, that really, I think, is where DOD is moving towards. And it's going to have to be become much more of a mix of of these more, you know, F-35 type systems complemented with a lot of other systems that, that we are okay sacrificing um, for some of these conflicts. And uh, I think I think that that paradigm, when that happens, will kind of change this whole conversation and, and we'll be talking about other things and, you know, hopefully, hopefully talking more about what's the operational concept for that? Like, how would you handle this threat? How would you handle that scenario? Like, I'd much more... I'd much more rather get Congress focused on those conversations than on these like kind of abstract, you know, availability rates. Yeah. 
No, I like that aggregation versus disaggregation paradigm shift. Uh, another one way I like to think of, I guess, what well, I'll go back to on the the Harrison curve is like, uh, is it that you have more aircraft which drives sustainment costs down, or is it when sustainment costs are low you can afford more? <laughs> right, like on the MQ9 and like the UAVs, you're able to buy a lot more of them because they were so cheap, as opposed to because you had a bunch of them already. Yeah, I mean, I do think we have to look at the like the, the totality of the system because it also includes manpower. A system that has you know requires a a thousand people to operate it's probably not uh, not going to be not going to run the cost benefit you know now analysis gauntlet very well. Um, so yeah, for sustainment, it I mean it depends, right? I mean, in some cases you can actually have um, you know great sustainment rates, right? And but you do that because you buy like tons of spares. And you keep like huge stockpiles. Um, so reliability comes into play. If you want a highly reliable system, you, you're going to have to design it better and design it for that. Um, and that will probably reduce, you know, some of your out your costs, but you'll you'll pay more up front. But I do think that less complexity, kind of the Dan Ward's, you know, simplicity cycle, I think inherently reduces sustainment costs, just because when you have systems that are um, a lot more manageable, don't need to go to the depots, uh, you know, maybe they're just like, you're, you're just replacing a line replaceable unit, but it's like a, it's not like a huge thing. Sometimes your line replaceable units actually drive up sustainment costs because you actually are like replacing huge boxes in an aircraft. And it's like, that box is like a million dollars, you know? So that's not, that's not cheap. It's easy to maintain because it's easy to take out and replace, but it's not cheaper. Um, but when we move to the play- point where like you're replacing a line replaceable unit and that thing is only like a couple thousand dollars, I think that's that's where the sustainment um, conversation changes. And so F-35s will always be incredibly expensive to sustain. There's just no way we're ever going to get around it. They're too complex. There's too many parts. Every part is expensive, exotic. And so we we need to complement that. And then I think that will kind of change Todd's paradigm a little bit of, you know, <laughs> You know, yes, you can have quantity. You're not going to be able to have quantity, I mean, of, you know, of these F-22s and F-35s and, you know, DDG 1000s. I think any of those systems will always be incredibly expensive. LCSs, they're always going to be expensive to maintain. I think you just have to start to balance out the force and say, how many of those do we need to achieve the effects that we need? um, And how can we complement that with much lower cost systems? Yeah, uh, most definitely. So... (laughs) Uh, we'll we'll move off this one for now, and we'll go to the next one, which is an interesting, different view. So I'll bring it up, and let's see what we think of it. Uh, to benefit from commercial tech, DoD will have to solve this problem of security. And the quote that I really want to focus here is kind of on Jedi itself. So, um, quote, the failure to see Jedi procurement through to a successful conclusion is one example of how DoD acquisition practices fly in the face of security requirements. A single cloud makes sense from a security point of view and from the point of view of ensuring seamless movement of data down to the tactical edge. One of the distinguishing features of the Jedi was the high security requirements for the winning contractor. At the time uh, the contract was awarded, there was only one company, Amazon Web Services, able to meet those standards. The decisions to go with multiple contractors recreates the very problem that Jedi was intended to solve. A veritable storm of clouds across the DoD with inherent incompatibilities and security seams. So I think you and I were kind of talking a little bit about well the the JWCC the the new um, multi cloud you know path that the DoD is going down. 
that kind of just made sense, right? Like industry was already going that way. And it just seemed like that from a contractual standpoint and from a competitive standpoint, it made sense. But he took some, he's taken a very different point of view that this, I guess it's this monolithic view, but I mean, there is the point that data is more easily transferable and potentially security is better at that point. What do you think? I mean, yeah, I don't totally, I don't totally agree with this. I mean, sure, if you have one contractor, it's much easier to, to ensure that that one contractor is at the level that you want. Um, you know, FedRAMP, FedRAMP is is a, is, a, is a cloud certification, cybersecurity certification that that gets you know all cloud vendors that do business with DoD to a certain level. Um, I think you know JWCC uh, is. It's going to be at a higher level than CloudRamp. Um, they're probably going to require some additional kind of NIST controls. They're also, you know, moving into a zero trust kind of, you know, um, area where, you know, that's that's going to be the new uh, the, the new architecture that that all this is, is geared around. And so, you know, so I don't I don't agree. I mean, Amazon, Microsoft, Oracle, Google, these are all big, comp- you know, high tech companies. They all know cybersecurity. Maybe they haven't, you know, been at the DoD level, and so, yeah, yeah, maybe you know, maybe Microsoft was a little bit ahead of the game, but there's no reason to think that these a- AWS other huge companies was what he was. I'm saying. sorry, a- I'm sorry, Amazon. Yeah, even though they Amazon, awarded it to Microsoft, right? So that's where you, yeah, that's right. It went back and forth. <laughs> um, but Oracle and Google, you know, I mean, come on, like those companies, they're they're going to be able to comply with. This. Or Oracle uh, didn't get the award yet. I don't think. Oh no, Oracle did. Who was it that didn't? There was one company that was left out in the lurch. Oh. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, you know, these are big companies. They're, they're all going to be able to come up to speed. Um, there's going to be a lot of, you know, the CMMC 2.2.0 hasn't actually gone through the rulemaking process. So that's not in play, but the NIST controls are very clear. Um, and so they're going to have to comply with them. They're going to also have to operate at the, you know, the different levels, right? I mean, they're going to have to operate at the, the secret or top secret and, and SAP levels probably. And, um, you know, and, or actually three, they up to top secret. They don't go to SAP. So, but up to top secret, they're you know, so they're going to have different controls that they're going to have to comply with different, uh, different, uh, you know, considerations that they're going to have to have in play. And they knew that going in, right. That's not a surprise <laughs> to any of these guys. So I don't really, I don't really get this, that this is going to be some huge hodgepodge veritable, you know, storm of clouds. I mean, these are all very responsible cloud providers. These aren't fly by night operations. Um, so yeah, so I don't really buy that. I think, um, you know, of course it'll take, it'll take time to get, uh, uh, you know, get everybody up to the top secret level, but, uh, but it'll happen. And I think these companies are also well poised to kind of pull in some of the things that DOD CIO was looking at with terms of artificial intelligence and continuous monitoring, you know, all the different tools that, uh, some of these companies have already, already provide as part of their platform offerings, but, you know, get that to be a more common, uh, more common thing as different um, uh, DOD DOD customers use them, they'll they'll have those things at the ready. So it'll actually make this will hopefully make you know data more more secure, more reliable across DOD as a result of these companies getting up to speed. So um, I, I don't agree. I don't share their concern. Yeah, I also I guess just don't share the grander vision of just like one giant data lake where every single thing in the Department of Defense exists and resides, 
and we can just tap that and pull it all together and we'll have the greatest of greatest you know di- big data problem to solve right <laughs> um i just don't think that's like realistic or something that's even desirable in many circumstances so um, i'm not exactly super pissed off that there might be multiple clouds and there might be whether it's manual or other translational types of issues um, in terms of how data flows from one to another. But of course, you know, Kath Hicks um, and the DepSec Def, she had that big memo on data shareability. But I don't think there, it, it went so far as to say, thou shalt use the same cloud solution. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think it would be actually scary for DoD to be kind of on one cloud solution because... Right that's like a single point of failure. And, you know, it also kind of makes, makes it hard to negotiate um, cloud costs. So, you know, that is a, that can be a pretty kind of expensive kind of thing as, as we store more and more data um, in that environment. So yeah, good to have some competition, good to have some, you know, variability. Yeah. One thing people always like to point out is just like, well, those server farms, like we know where they are. There's some in like Northern Virginia, uh, you could just like they're not physically impenetrable, right? Like even if even if they're hard enough to hack or you might have an issue there, like of course that's a resilience issue in of itself, but you could just like straight up throw a missile or a bomb or whatever at one of those things. They even go down randomly. There was pretty recently in an AWS outage that was pretty big, so you know, these things happen. Well, if a bomb drops in the Virginia neighborhood, the bigger issues there. <laughs> <laughs> well that's what but the yeah. department good, good, good is here point, for though. right like, the department's here to, <laughs> to survive through through those times and not you know like yeah that, that yeah. something like that brings them down you know i was fair point i saw there is this uh tv shows like uh cities of the underworld um where they just go into like all the i guess undergrounds around the world and one of them one of the less interesting ones was actually in new york city but they had uh a big uh, electrical generator, like all these dynamos and stuff down like below uh, the the rail yard in New York City. And they were saying like, if you took down these generators, you would basically bring the, the allied war effort to a halt because basically all of the materiel flowing out to Europe was going through uh, the harbor at New York City and relied on these railroads. So they had like all sorts of crazy... Um, like secret access codes and like pathways and all this other stuff um, to like stop any kinds of uh, sabotage. And so just reminded me of that. Well, yeah, there was a, there were some interesting stories about how like the Nazis actually like, you know, brought a submarine up to, I think, I think they landed in like South Carolina or something, but like Germans actually like there's a whole, I think there was actually a movie made about it where they actually get on land. The German saboteurs got on land and they were making their way. I think they got lost or something, but, um, and captured by the FBI. But, uh, yeah, there actually were German saboteurs in the U S and I think they were going after some of those like centers of gravity at the, yeah, at the time. Yeah. It's kind of scary to think about if you think about like, uh, like a growing conflict with, you know, Russia or China, we have a whole lot of Russian and Chinese nationals. Like you, you can't just like where you going to intern like all those people like like we did in 1945. Like I don't know. There's that. I wonder what happens there. But that's like pretty easy sabotage land. You don't need to land people to go do that. Yeah, there. I mean, I know for like access to certain you know certain facilities, 
that they've, there's been more restrictions put in place about, you know, about that. But, uh, yeah, you're right. We're an open country, you know, it comes with vulnerabilities as well as benefits. And yeah, I think we probably would be risky if, uh, you know, in an all out war where people had nationalistic tendencies and maybe wanted to do something to support the, the motherland. So yeah, scary scenarios. I there. guess it's not even just them. Cause you hear all these like people who like accept relatively low bribes and they just like turn over national secrets and stuff like that. So it doesn't even have to be right. It could just be like a regular, you know, just like any, any old person. I do. I do. One thing about that though. I agree. I agree. Sometimes you look at that and it's like, you know, even like Aldrich games and stuff like, you know, the amount of money he got from like the Russians, you're like, dude, like seriously. Um, but you know, the pro the, the, the percentage is like, I mean, it's like getting hit by lightning twice, right? Like the percentages or something of the amount of people that have access to material and the amount of people that actually like do that. So of course I always do. I, like, I agree. Yeah. Like, <laughs> an, an open, an open society will always be faster, more innovative and better able to overcome these things. So I am very much a believer in civil liberties, economic freedoms, and the and the values that we stand for. Um, it's just, it's also the cost of destruction is that any random individual has is going down, and obviously that has been interpreted for you know terroristic pursuits. But um, it's also just like you know someone could just like three D print certain things, <laughs> or like even like jerry rig a UAV to include some kind of like ordinances. So it's just like you can do pretty high end capabilities these these days. And that's like I guess one of the things about like if energy gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, you know, then the that means the amount of destructive access in any individual has is greater, you know. Well, I mean, just look at like Bitcoin. If you took all the Bitcoin energy, put it in there, you'd probably be able to like power your, you know, power multiple nations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's like Azerbaijan. It's like a small nation. It's like the amount yeah. of electricity. It's insane. Yeah, I did. You, I, I read recently, like, uh, well, probably a month ago. But now, Bitcoin be, China, can't be. China. They can't be used for bad. Bitcoin is just like a decentralized like ledger. Like, what's a ledger going to no, do? No, I'm no. I'm yeah. just comparing. I'm comparing the energy energy use. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of insane. Oh. Uh, all right, yeah, let's move on from this topic. And, and the next one we got, Japan is set to develop rail guns to counter hypersonic missiles from uh, the Nikkei Asia. And so they earmarked $56 million in the FY22 budget to develop prototypes for a rail gun that will be used uh, to shoot down hypersonic missiles. And they're expecting it to be in actual use in the second half of the 2020s. And so one of the points here is that Existing intercept missiles are limited to speeds around 1,700 meters per second. Interceptors fired from an electromagnetic railgun might reach over 2,000 meters per second. And they reach speeds in a prototype of 2,300. So um, I guess, obviously, the faster you go, the easier it is to hit the, a moving target. But it's not exactly that much faster than S, S, uh, a missile that, uh, that I was expecting. But any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's still it's it's kind of like the same dilemma that the MDA Missile Defense Agency has. I mean, people have talked about it as a bullet hitting a bullet. You know, I mean, it's not going to be that much different. Uh, you, you're going to have to have really, really good uh, radar tracking and targeting uh, targeting radars. So, yeah, not easy. But 
I do love the fact that, I mean, I think for Japan, it makes a lot of sense because especially if it's on land, you don't have some of the energy issues that I think, you know, kind of deterred the Navy from using it on the ships. Um, by the way, I read some article recently that Congress is still kind of annoyed about that, that they gave up on the rail goods so easily. But yeah, um, that's why I was going to I was going to mention that, too, because we talked about <laughs> that. They, they just straight up canceled the darn program. And I mean, the advanced yeah. gun system, it was kind of, yeah, for the zoom wall. But, you know, maybe that should have been transferred somewhere else or just like that doesn't mean the research shouldn't continue. It needs to continue somewhere. So I'm glad Japan's doing it. I mean, this is to me. This is a perfect like you know. Bill Greenwald, you know, wrote that that really great uh, Reagan um, Reagan Institute paper about uh, you know incorporating allies into our R and D infrastructure. And yep, you know, this one is perfect. Like you know, Japan actually wants to field this thing. The Navy's kind of given up on it, and all the other services are really that interested. Man, turn that turn that uh, IP over to Japan. Come up with an agreement and say, hey, if you actually field this you know, you'll sell us some of your units back, like, you know, make some agreement out of this, like make this an allied us allied, uh, uh, investment project. So I hope the Navy does something smart with it and maybe they can, you know, accelerate their, their fielding of it because yeah, given where they're at in the whole South China sea and the, you know, the different, different, um, uh, different circles there, um, makes sense for them to kind of have this, uh, along, you know, along their shoreline, where they could they could take out some, you know, hypersonics that maybe were being used against ships that were in the you know in, in the near you know the near uh, area around the, around their land or something. So yeah, I don't know. I hope uh, I hope something good comes out of this. Maybe the Navy will take inspiration and reinvigorate their their efforts too. Yeah, it would be good. I just you know maybe just more teams need to be working on it to a degree. Like there, there actually used to be like a patent pool of all of the aircraft firms in the United States in like the forties and fifties. I was pretty surprised to read about that. Um, but such a thing sounds like a kind of interesting idea and maybe nothing bad on the general atomics guys, I guess that have been doing it in the U S but like maybe it just needs another look or something, but I'm not too optimistic that Japan is actually going to get anything out of this 56 million in a year. And they want to do something pretty fast and seems like a really hard objective. So um, I hope it, I hope it works out to something because that's a, that's an incredible capability and you kind of got to get that <laughs> if it, if it's real. Well, well, one of the things they did sound like they got the, the prototype, uh, they already kind of, you know, got that to achieve with a speed of 23, 2300 meters per second. So it sounds like, it sounds like they're making some progress there. Maybe, maybe they are getting assistance behind the scenes that we don't know about, but they might, I mean, yeah, the U S I mean, like the, the U S problem isn't that they haven't been able to like fire off a shot. I guess it's just like the operationality, like it's just not operational for some kind of reason, like in terms of its ability to hit something or too costly. A lot of it was too much energy, right. For a ship, but I guess on a land-based thing, that wouldn't matter. Yeah, that that might be the big difference is, you know, having something on a ship with the the recoil, the shock, the, you know, environmental factors, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anything on a ship has like 10x complexity because of the, you know, the environment it has to operate in. And so that that might actually be the big differentiator. Maybe on land, this is like a much, you know, much, much easier problem to solve. Whereas on a ship, maybe it really wasn't feasible and the Navy's right about that. Well, you... I mean, like the when you look at the Navy's one, I think the they just have a land-based one, right? So they've been working on it on land. So was the problem the transition to this ship, or was it just like the land-based test, just like wasn't like even there yet? 
No, I thought it was about I thought it was about the the ship integration, the the um, the energy consumption and stuff that they felt like it wasn't it wasn't getting to the point where it was going to be effective. But yeah, I'd have to go back and reread some of those articles. But I thought it was the ship integration piece. <laughs> you know, if it, if it's only the ship integration, like let's just say that this thing is actually pretty far along. I would I want a hundred rail guns along the the shores of uh, Taiwan. <laughs> Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I, I never thought about it like that as a, um, a missile defense capability. But also, know, like, no water. one's coming ashore <laughs> with railguns in there. <laughs> you know, you have to take the railguns out if you're going to get there. <laughs> yeah. That is a really good point because you're right. A lot of the, uh, you know, if you were actually going to land, land troops, you know, if you had a bunch of railguns on the shore, that would be a deterrent. I don't know how railguns work about uh, with aircraft. That's that is that's one thing I did think about when I was reading this is like if this works against a missile flying at that like you think you could use them against aircraft too I mean if you can hit a missile you can hit an aircraft so yeah most definitely I don't know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> all right uh, next one we got the Air Force's small telescope tech will help detect enemy satellites sneaking up on friendly ones from the drive. And so the ability to detect and capture images of the space-based objects without the need for massive telescopes could aid the Pentagon's effort to track small maneuverable satellites in close proximity with one another. And they're using a capability um, that's actually, it's pretty interesting here. They have a 1.5 meter telescope, and they said that they're able to capture uh, the image of a 30 kilometer moon around an asteroid between Mars and Jupiter, so in the asteroid belt. So that's, that's really far away. 30 kilometers isn't all that big when you're talking, you know, more than a million miles, multiple millions of miles out there, right? So this is a pretty um, intense telescope, and I guess they're that's just kind of the test case, but they're going to use it for tracking objects in orbit. And I guess they can build a whole bunch of these and put them all over the place. So, you know, spaceman over there, what, <laughs> what's the implications of this? Well, I mean, we we definitely use we use ground optics to detect satellites and to gain, you know, different data. Um, ground optics are, you know, they're only problematic in the sense that if there's cloud cover, it, it does make it pretty hard for them to operate. So you have to have like a really clear clear sky, and there's also problems with like you know looking into the sun because you kind of get you know obscured by the light. So there's there's a lot of uh, you know, downsides to, to ground optics, which is why we have so many space assets that are dedicated to, um, well, I won't say that many, we actually, you know, I wish we had more, but dedicated to space situational awareness. And, uh, that is a big mission for space force is space situational awareness. Um, you know, I posted something on LinkedIn about, I wish that department of commerce would take over more of this SSA role for kind of commercial satellites because space force has that mission of, trying to uh, keep track of everything and you know if something's going to hit a commercial satellite they they uh they, they have some responsibility for telling them about it and you know they also do collision avoidance for a lot of military satellites so uh so it's a big mission up there especially as more and more you know satellites get launched like starlink and so yeah this is you know this is definitely a capability that space force has uh it's kind of interesting though i don't think i realized that adaptive optics uh came into play like basically in the like 90s or 80s and that it was uh that the scientists i mean this was back in the star wars era where they like they they thought they would put mirrors in space and then reflect beams from like ground lasers uh 
and then they would destroy satellites in orbit or ballistic missiles in orbit. So in flight. And so I thought that was kind of interesting that they had some really, uh, really forward looking kind of, you know, con ops for how to use lasers, but you know, that never happened. Uh, but, but now we have, you know, now we have these adaptive optics that can really see some pretty interesting astronomical stuff. I read something recently. They just watched a, a giant, uh, a, or a red super giant explode and stuff. And they probably used kind of similar, similar tools for that. So yeah, pretty interesting stuff. A lot of software behind it too. So yeah, I like that part. So the last one we'll do. We think Kratos defense and security solutions are, is taking some risk with, with its debt. And so basically the article here is saying that uh, Kratos has 210 million of liabilities due within one year and 410 million the next year. Um, but they also have quite a bit of cash on hand. So they actually are a little bit liquid, but the, the guy here is saying, unfortunately, um, Kratos's EBITDA flopped 11% over the last four quarters, so they've been losing money. And if that decline is not arrested, then they will be uh, managing the debt. So they have quite a bit of debt. Will be pretty. Will be pretty hard. And it looks like Kratos is not making too much. I think they're getting about 800 million dollars a year. 200 million in the last quarter. Uh, so, um, that's quite a bit of debt. I think like the whole point of this, I think that is interesting is that they didn't even talk about, I think they're taking on the debt to do some development for the air force with their unmanned vehicles, including Valkyrie, but they have a bunch of others. Right. And so like, will the department, you know, turn those into the programs and start buying them in production quantities or not? That's kind of like what Kratos's future almost seems to be hinging on. Of course, Kratos also has a lot of, you know, space stuff that they're doing and otherwise, but it seems like the, the kind of UAV market is, is a big, is a big play for them. Yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I think that has been, you know, they, they were kind of at the forefront with Valkyrie. Um, they've developed a bunch of different UAV, you know, unmanned systems. And so they, they definitely are waiting, I think for the, cash to come in i think they're waiting for that big production contract they actually did get i read in august they they did get a big contract for their aerial targets that was a 300 million contract but i think it's you know uh, that's like the the ceiling and they only got like 30 million last year um and it seems like they're only getting about roughly about you know 13 million for um for like skyborg um and a few million here and there for mq20 so they're not getting they're not there in the big money yet um but i think they're well poised so the air force to my you know to my surprise and disappointment they've kind of delayed some of these uas uas uh, programs Uh, but i think secretary kendall is on board this year i think the next budget that comes out will be quite a bit more UAV friendly. Um, and I'm hoping to see some, some decent procurement dollars in there. Uh, the air force surprise. Yeah. I don't know why, but they've, they have kind of slow rolled this and, uh, and they, they need to kind of step up and get skyboard going because, uh, that definitely is the future and, you know, uh, you know, everything, everything points to that. So Kratos, I think is well poised, but you know, I hope the government just like we've talked about before, you know, I hope we're not a tourist, kind of innovation tourist on this one and that we actually kind of, you know, reward Kratos for kind of leaning forward like they have been. 
Yeah, uh, just looking at their stock price, the last year they shed a third of their value. But of course, the the couple years before that, they've they've seen a pretty big rise. So there might have been some uh, some exuberance as to the types of things that they were doing and the potential for for the revenue. And now they're kind of in the make it or break it phase, and it looks like maybe the markets are getting a little bit weary whether they're going to be able to turn those investments into you know big revenues and and kind of grow their way. They're a $2.6 billion company, by the way, um, by market cap. So, yeah, I've, um, you know, in terms of getting programs on and, and moving to, to the next thing and new starts, actually, the last thing we should just talk about here real quick is House appropriators are to probe the continuing resolution impacts to DOD. And basically, they're just saying they're going to go look at it. But there's, of course, that GAO report that said, uh, the government, the the DoD has many ways of kind of mitigating the impacts of CRs, but like if we get into a full year CR, well, then you have no new starts and you have many other problems besides, right? Because uh, there was actually a plus up in the budget, so they wouldn't get all that money. So, um, any CR impact? Final thoughts? Yeah, I think we I think we are moving to a paradigm with with like new a lot of new programs starting where we're, you know, we're phasing out kind of General Brown's, you know, approach of like phasing out some of the things and we finally are able to do that and, and put more money into the modernization accounts. Um, this is going to become more impactful. I mean, I think the last, the last decade of CRs, we've mostly had fairly static programs. It didn't start a lot of new stuff. Um, so it didn't have as many impacts, but now that, now that we're really focused on the China fight, pivot to the Pacific, we are, you know, this is going to become more real. So at, at a minimum, we're going to need a, a good deal of anomalies to allow those new starts to continue while under a CR if there's a, if there is a year long one. Um, but you're right. We won't get those extra dollars and programs will limp programs that were like, you know, scheduled to scale up either procurement wise or development wise. We're, we're on an upward slope. They're, they're going to get punished and it's not fair. Uh, we should be able to pass the budget. So, um, so yeah, I don't, I don't like this kind of not, not so nonchalance about like, ah, what programs will adjust. They've been doing that, but I think we're moving into a different era. Yeah. Tell an entrepreneur, you know, oh, we'll, we'll buy that thing from you. Just another year. It's been many years, but just another year, right? It's like that, 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 that hurts. Right. And it also hurts national security to a degree. Like, um, you know, when you think about it and we go back to this, this strategy idea, but like, okay, the 2018 NDS, we're going to start ramping up for near-peer competition and moving to emerging technologies. That was the thrust. And so, like, by the 2020-2021 budget, we should have been able to kind of have that flow into the system because that's how long budgeting stuff takes. But really, you know, it's like bleeding into 22, and then 23 is now supposed to be the big shebang, right? Like, the big shebang, like, change year is always, like, a year or two off. It feels like, and it, we just never, we never quite get there. Something happens, and and the, or we change direction and get a new president, and whatever it is, right? So I don't know. It just seems like it's just taking too long. Yeah, we can't rely on twenty three either because there is there's an election, a twenty two election that could change the dynamics in Congress, and you know, folks that were supportive of a of a higher defense budget you know, could push for more domestic spending. And so, yeah, you don't know year to year. You're absolutely right. And it's unfair to companies that um, that are kind of leaning forward 
and trying to work with DOD, even though, you know, they could do work in the civilian sector, they've decided to make DOD kind of their focus. And then, you know, then we treat them that way. So yeah, now I hope, I hope we can at least get a, a lot of anomalies so that we can at least start those programs. But, you know, it still will be suboptimal. But and shout out to PBBE Reform Commission. That's all we got time for this week. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Eric. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time. <laughs>